This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, Merck, and Seattle Genetics. Thank you for joining us today for Live at the AUA 2019 in Chicago to talk about the management of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. My name is Dr. Kristen Scarpato. I'm a urologic oncologist and assistant professor of urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I am pleased to be the moderator for these interesting sessions today. I am here today with Dr. John Gore. Dr. Gore is an associate professor of urology and is the program director of the University of Washington SUO Fellowship in Urologic Oncology. He oversees a research program devoted to health services and patient-centered outcomes research in urologic oncology. Dr. Seema Porton is an assistant professor of urology at UCSF. Her clinical research and research interests are focused on urothelial carcinoma and integrative medicine. And Dr. Chad Rich is a fellowship trained urologic oncologist and currently an assistant professor of urology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He is a member of the AUA guideline panel for the management of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Welcome Dr. Gore, Dr. Porton, and Dr. Rich. We can expect more than 80,000 patients to be diagnosed with bladder cancer this year. Approximately 17,000 people will, um, deaths will be attributed to bladder cancer this year. It's the sixth most common cancer in the U.S. The majority of the patients who are diagnosed with bladder cancer have non-muscle invasive disease, so about 75% of patients. Of those who have non-muscle invasive disease, about 75% of them will be pathologic TA. Um, about 20 to 25% will be T1 disease. And five to 10% of patients will have CIS. While the data are variable, anywhere from 30 to 80% of patients will recur within five years. And so this is a huge burden for patients, and all of this contributes to making bladder cancer one of the most expensive cancers to treat. The goals of treatment are to reduce recurrence and to limit progression or prevent progression. So it's really important to have well-organized, clear, and instructive guidelines. So let's start by focusing on the current treatment recommendations and the guidelines for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and then we'll move into how the landscape is changing. Dr. Rich, in Saturday's session at the AUA 2019 with Dr. Sam Chang and Dr. James McKiernan, you told us about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer guidelines, and you used a couple of different clinical scenarios to help highlight them. Um, in, the, in 2016, the AUA, together with the SUO, put forth these guidelines. So can you just start by telling us how the guidelines are currently organized? Sure, so they're broken down into 10 different sections, um, starting with diagnosis, risk stratification, variant histology, urine markers, uh, re-resection intravesical therapy, BCG salvage, early cystectomy, enhanced cystoscopy, and surveillance. Um, the big thing for the guidelines is risk stratification. So they break them down into low, intermediate, and high risk. Um, intermediate is sort of the catch-all. High risk are the obvious high-grade T1s. Low risk is small, solitary, low-grade tumor. So the idea is each time when you start to treat a patient, you want to risk stratify those patients. Um, some of the other things that they add inside there are enhanced cystoscopy, so that's kind of new to the guidelines. Um, there's, we'll talk about it in a second, but there's some data to support blue light cystoscopy over standard white light cystoscopy alone because of increased detection and decreased recurrence rates. Um, another important area of the guidelines is re-emphasizing things like uh, perioperative chemotherapy, um, re-resection, so we know that there's a rate of residual tumor left behind. Also uh, increased uh, upstaging with high-grade T1 tumors. So you want to really go back in and try to re-resect to make sure that you don't have any 
um, understaging happening. So those are sort of some of the things that we've tried to emphasize in the guidelines for this go around. Great. So regarding enhanced uh, cystoscopy, we know that white light cystoscopy has some shortcomings. It misses about 15% of tumors. Which uh, tumors or which patients should have narrowband imaging or um, blue light cystoscopy? And what is the strength of the guideline recommendation? Yeah. So for blue light cystoscopy, um, the strength of the recommendation is moderate and it's grade B evidence. Um, narrowband imaging is uh, a conditional recommendation um, and it's grade C evidence. And the reason is, with the blue light cystoscopy, you have sort of more conclusive evidence that says one has uh, uh, increased detection rate and decreased recurrence. Whereas for narrowband imaging, it's a little bit, um, not controversial, but there's some studies that show that it does help, some studies that show it doesn't help. So the, the conclusiveness and the strength of the evidence is not as good. Okay. Um, as far as which patients, essentially what the guideline says is that every patient that's going for a, re a bladder tumor resection if it's available, should get uh, either narrowband imaging or blue light cystoscopy. It's not something that we say uh, everybody should have. We don't want to mandate that every institution purchase it. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about urinary biomarkers. What biomarkers are currently available? What's recommended by the guidelines? Um, and is there any, any biomarkers that we should be on the lookout for? So it's, it's a hot topic, urinary biomarkers, you know, that's sort of the holy grail. Can we get something in the urine that can show us who might not need a cystoscopy, who may need a cystoscopy? So right now, the, the guidelines basically say, well, for one, you don't want to replace a cystoscopy with a urinary biomarker. So that's very important. You know, don't forego the system. The reason is the sensitivity of the biomarkers is not good enough to replace the good old-fashioned cystoscopy. Um, the next thing is where we can use it, so BCG response. So if you want to see if a patient's responding, urinary biomarkers may be helpful. Or if you have those frustrating atypical cytologies, equivocal cytology, that's where urinary biomarker can help you. Um, and then as far as which ones are, you know, it's sort of the ones most of us know about. Eurovision fish is probably the most well studied. Um, there's also uh, some new data emerging around CX bladder, which is a panel of five mRNAs. Um, that has pretty good crossover of sensitivity and specificity, ranging in the 80%. Um, in addition, there's the NMP22, the BTA, uh, immunocyte, but none of them really have the good intersection of sensitivity and specificity that you'd like in a biomarker. And then another new one that's coming out is the uh, Assure MDX. Um, there's another one, Expert BC. So, you know, the data is still out there for those ones, but the uh, sensitivity and specificity seem to be a little bit better. Um, so it's exciting. We'll see what happens with those. And so currently none of these markers are replacing cystoscopy? None of them are replacing cystoscopy. That's correct. Okay, great. Why don't we transition into talking a little bit about therapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. What has traditionally been the intravesical therapies utilized for bladder cancer treatment? So the mainstay of intravesical treatment has for many, many years been BCG. Um, there are other non-immunotherapy-based treatments uh, that are chemotherapy uh, agents that are instilled into the bladder, and the commonest ones are mitomycin, uh, valrubicin, and then more recently we're seeing a lot of increased use of gemcitabine. There are a litany of other therapies, but those are the ones most commonly used in the U.S. And is there any guidance you can give us on how you choose which agent and maybe talk a little bit about risk stratification? So um, risk stratification has a big role to play in how we make decisions about intravesical therapy. So there's not a role for intravesical therapy for low-risk patients. Those, as Dr. Rich mentioned, are those isolated, low-grade, um, less risky, less at risk for progression, still at risk for recurrence, 
but those are patients where the harms of intravesical therapy likely outweigh the benefits of intravesical therapy. For intermediate and high-risk patients, it's a little more obvious that we should try to do something to prevent at least recurrences, if not progression of their non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. In intermediate risk uh, patients, we at least want to consider the use of intravesical therapy, but in high-risk patients, it's a really important adjunct to their care. Okay, so if you have a patient who has a low-risk bladder tumor and you're considering doing a single perioperative dose of intravesical chemotherapy, what are you using currently? So traditionally, we used mitomycin, uh, but more recently, there is level one evidence from the SWOG0337 trial uh, that gemcitabine appears to be as effective as mitomycin in preventing recurrences. That trial was not a head-to-head -head comparison between gemcitabine and mitomycin, but the rationale for that is that the uptake of mitomycin has been extremely low. Um, and so the standard of care, as is practiced in the United States of America, appears to be nothing. But when you look at the marginal benefit of gemcitabine compared with mitomycin, the number needed to treat to prevent one recurrence is about the same, and it's a much cheaper drug. So our go-to agent is gemcitabine for post-URBT installation. And if you're going to give an intermediate risk patient induction therapy, um, what agents are available and what, what are you using? So if you look at our guidelines, most commonly people tend to use, and it's true in the community as well, tend to use BCG. With variable availability of BCG, the recommendations have shifted toward using chemotherapy, and that's been our practice pattern as well. Traditionally, we used mitomycin, but with all the data on post-TRBT installation of mitomycin and the apparent effectiveness of gemcitabine in these low-grade tumors, we've shifted to using gemcitabine for those patients with a traditional six-week induction course. So on Saturday, you gave a great session at the SUO of AUA 2019, and you were talking about gemcitabine. Is it the new standard? I'll ask you. Is it the new standard? I believe it is. So standard of care does not mean superior care necessarily, but standard of care means what we can implement as a best practice to try to give the patients that we care for the best treatment. And it appears that gemcitabine is at least similarly effective as mitomycin, but the value proposition is a bit of a no-brainer. Mitomycin is a very expensive drug. Gemcitabine is a very affordable drug. So when you think about the quality that we deliver, uh, kind of cross-product with the cost of the care we're providing, it's, it's fairly um, obvious that we should be using mitomycin, or gemcitabine. Okay, and in general, when you're counseling patients about intravesical therapy, what are you telling them they can expect in terms of side effects and things to watch out for? So it differs a little bit by which intravesical agent you're using. One of the other benefits of gemcitabine is that it appears to have a lower adverse event profile compared with mitomycin or BCG. Um, it has rates of adverse events that are fairly similar to an installation of saline, but you can have local effects, so irritation to the bladder. Uh, we call those storage urinary symptoms, things like urinary frequency, urgency, maybe some bladder pain. These therapies can get absorbed and you can get some systemic effects. So depending on what agent you're using, those systemic effects can vary. So for immunotherapies, that can be things like fever, fatigue, aches. Uh, for things like chemotherapy, it can actually cause cytopenias and some other adverse events. Those right. are very rare. Okay, so let's focus a little bit more on immunotherapy right now and intravesical BCG. You know, historically we haven't known how BCG has worked but there's been some exciting developments at this meeting. I believe it was Dr. Inman presented on um, a mechanism of action now about how BCG actually 
we do know how it works, which is pretty exciting. But which patients are you using BCG for? Yeah, so I think um, both Dr. Gore and Dr. Rich had mentioned risk stratification, which again is at the center of, of how we decide which patients to treat with these therapies. And so for patients who are intermediate and high risk, both those patients get induction BCG. And I would say with the most recent data from, from Europe, it's how long should those patients get maintenance. So patients who are high risk, based on our original SWOG trials um, done here in the US, for, for those patients, we recommend getting maintenance for about three years. And for patients who are intermediate risk, you can likely reduce that down to maintenance therapy for just one year with the hopes that that would be less side effects when you look at the balance between efficacy and side effects. Great. I think there are a lot of terms thrown out there regarding response to BCG, which can be confusing. We hear BCG relapsing, BCG refractory, BCG unresponsive. Can you talk us through some of the definitions and then tell us what language we should be using? Yeah, definitely. So BCG terminology is very confusing. I would say um, <clears throat> the easiest one to start out with is BCG intolerant. And so BCG intolerance means that patients can't get BCG due to side effects or symptoms or systemic absorption or other complications. Um, and they can't, it, more importantly, they can't get adequate BCG. So that's the next step, what is adequate BCG? So for induction course, it is getting at least five out of six therapies. For maintenance, it's getting at least two out of the three week therapies. And so then when you break that definition down farther, you come into very common terms called BCG unresponsive, which I think is a good um, term that catches two states. One is BCG refractory, and that's what we used to use for this terminology. So that's high-risk patients who, who basically have a recurrence. So for high-grade TA and CIS recurrences, those have to happen after getting induction plus maintenance, six plus three, or five plus two. It can also be in a situation where patients get two courses of induction. And then the other group of that is BCG relapsing disease. And so those are patients who have had a response after adequate BCG, but then go to develop a recurrence at a later time period. For those patients, um, that can be defined as early, intermediate, and late. And patients who are within that early category, within six to 12 months of receiving their adequate BCG, that also goes into BCG unresponsive. And that's what we use to define who is eligible for a clinical trial. And what percentage of patients do you think are BCG unresponsive? How, how well no. does BCG work? So like anything, the devil's in the details. It depends on what your original disease state is. Like if you start out with complete pure CIS, your response to BCG is actually quite good. And there's a lower chance those patients would be BCG unresponsive. About 80% of patients respond um, who are pure carcinoma in situ. With some of the other uh, risk types or I guess high-grade TA with carcinoma in situ, high-grade T1, who we find highest of risk, we usually will say around 20 to 40% of patients will develop a recurrence, which would de deem them BCG unresponsive or possibly within that intermediate or late relapsing category. But definitely patients you don't want to use BCG again in. Yeah. Are there other patients that you don't want to use BCG in? So specifically, I'm thinking right now about variant histology. And in the guidelines, Dr. Rich, you talked about the importance of um, having a, a dedicated GU pathologist to um, identify variant histology. Are there variant histology patients who should not receive BCG? Yeah, so there's um, definitely some. So that is when you see a small cell histology, those patients 
need to have primary chemotherapy and then the same will go in the invasive space. Patients with micropapillary disease have been shown to have a very high upstaging rate and also very high progression rate. And so this is progression of muscle invasion or lymph node metastasis. And so that's a patient population you want to be very mindful to think about whether BCG should be used or not. It does seem to be tied into um, how much of that particularly bad acting variant histology there is. Other bad acting variants are like plasmacytoid. Those are generally patients you don't want to try BCG in. Um, if you do see something like squamous differentiation or glandular differentiation, those patients are actually okay to use BCG in. Okay, great. So for the BCG unresponsive patient, Dr. Rich, what do the guidelines say in terms of treatment options? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and actually, Dr. Porton gave a great talk last year at the SEO AUA section on the myriad of options that are available for BCG unresponsive disease. Now, just to clarify, so there are intravesical chemotherapy options, but one of the other options are, is also surgery, early cystectomy. So if you're not responding to BCG and you're fit and healthy and can undergo surgery, high-grade T1 patient, for example, who doesn't respond to BCG, should probably consider early cystectomy in that patient. Um, obviously, there's a trade-off between the morbidity of a cystectomy um, versus, you know, bladder sparing and what the, the patient preference. But it's important to consider that those patients are at a high rate of progression to muscle invasion. So you want to consider the guidelines as an early cystectomy in a high-grade T1 patient that doesn't respond to BCG. Um, now, for the other folks, you know, the intermediate risk or those who get, you know, induction therapy. You can and are, are not high-grade T1, or if they're unwilling or unfit for a cystectomy, um, you can consider things like gemcitabine, docetaxel, mitomycin, a combination of those. There's some data about BCG and interferon, but as Dr. Porton presented, and you know, she illustrated multiple ranges of response, anywhere from as low as 10% up to 40%. So the response rates aren't that great, you know, once you've sort of gone through the, the induction BCG you still have um, recur recurrence or relapse in disease. So, you know, the other option from there is a clinical trial. So if you have access to a clinical trial at your institution, or if you're near an institution <coughs> with a clinical trial, you should consider referring those patients for um, enrollment. Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Gore, one of your research passions is patient-centered outcomes. I know you and Dr. Angie Smith just received a large grant to focus on patient-centered outcomes in patients who have BCG unresponsive disease. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. And uh, what, is, what are your plans for this trial and what are you hoping to learn? Yeah. So I think Dr. Portman and Dr. Rich very nicely illustrated the clinical challenge of managing these patients. It's a situation where we're sometimes choosing between a highly morbid, invasive, extirpative surgery and continued potentially ineffective treatments into the bladder that have their own morbidity chronically. So it's a clinical challenge. It's also a patient challenge. Patients themselves have to balance choosing between potentially um, competing morbidities, uh, competing kind of life decisions. So we partnered with patients in the Bladder Cancer um, Advisory Network, uh, Advocacy Network, and what we did was we tried to understand how we can address this, this comparison of cystectomy with continued um, intravesical treatment or more recently some infusion-based therapies uh, to better understand which patients should potentially consider a cystectomy at which time in their care. How can we add some personalization to this decision? And how can we think about how to address that, not necessarily with our traditional clinical outcomes like disease-free survival, recurrence-free survival, 
overall survival, but also with some patient-centered and often patient-reported outcomes like urinary quality of life, caregiver burden, um, financial toxicity, things that we otherwise wouldn't have thought about if we hadn't partnered with patients up front. The interesting thing about the trial is it's an observational trial, which is unique in urology, but it's because when you ask patients would they be willing to randomize to such an incredibly imposing decision like keeping your bladder or not, only 10% of patients would be willing to randomize. So in that clinical space, a randomized controlled trial would not be possible. And so that's why it's an observational study. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing the results of that. Um, let's get back, Dr. Porton, to talking a little bit about BCG unresponsive disease. You had a great session with Dr. Bevilacqua and Dr. Zloda on Saturday at AUA 2019, part of the SUO, um, talking about BCG unresponsive disease. So what are the options for these patients? Uh, is, are other strains of BCG options? Yeah, so um, I think Dr. Rich gave a perfectly logical option, which is early cystectomy, but there are many patients who can't have it. And, or who don't want it, which is definitely not unreasonable either. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of BCG strains, there's currently a trial, SWOG 1602, um, and it's looking at a Tokyo strain at BCG and also augmenting the BCG response um, with uh, sub subdermal priming. So it's called the prime trial. It, is there actually anything in the United States aside from TICE right now? No. That one is in clinical trial. Around the world, however, there are multiple BCG strains, all of which have shown fairly comparative efficacy. And so, yes, there are strains, but we don't have them available here just yet. Okay, great. And what about um, some salvage uh, intravesical therapies? Are we using those? Should we be using those? Yeah, so there, I would say that when you look at salvage intravesical therapies, uh, we had discussed a little bit about about gem, gemcitabine. And so single agent salvage intravesical therapies have not had a great uh, durable response rate. So probably one of the largest cooperative group trials looking at single agent gemcitabine showed a 28% response rate at one year, and it was 21% at two years. There's been much greater success using combination chemotherapy. This can increase toxicity, like with gemcitabine mitomycin. Our institution tends to use gemcitabine and mitomycin with, with fairly robust response rates of around 67% at one year, and mostly durable. We do get a little bit of drop into the 40% at two years. Other institutions have found gemcitabine and docetaxel to provide just as good efficacy, if not better, and maybe with some less side effects. However, that the, the use of that agent is fairly new in the last couple of years. That's another combination option. Great. And what about immunotherapies? Are there any checkpoint inhibitors available? So currently, there's no checkpoint in, uh, inhibitors available aside outside a clinical trial. Some very exciting results came from one of the recent keynote trials uh, looking at pembrolizumab, which is a systemic immunotherapy agent. What they found was at three months, they were able to get a 40% response rate. Um, but I think the more important part of what they found is that in patients who responded, this was durable for up to a year. Most patients had that response for up to a year. And then even more important is no patients lost their window of opportunity in that nobody went on to develop uh, muscle invasive disease or metastatic disease. So there is a window of opportunity to try to enroll patients in clinical trials to hopefully improve this space in the future. 
Great. And there were a couple other uh, clinical trials you mentioned uh, at your talk as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, another very exciting trial is Instilitrin. It has gone through phase two data showing a response rate of 35% to 50% at one year, depending on type of tumor, whether papillary or carcinoma in situ. Dr. Denny presented some very exciting updated data in patients, which actually uh, corroborates those results in the, in the longer term, and we're anxiously awaiting the phase three data from, from that trial. Great, okay. Um, moving on, let's talk about um, access. Dr. Rich, um, are there limitations or hurdles for uh, treatment of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer in terms of access? Yeah, so you know, in terms of access, obviously non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is a very heterogeneous group of patients and you know the treatment can be as simple as a TUR and then it's low risk and you're pretty much done, you're on surveillance, but it can get as complex as things like variant histology, um, access to certain intravascular therapies, so you know one of the things, first of all, in institutions, so at our academic institutions, we're fortunate to have GU pathologists who can review, you know, these slides. And so when you get a variant histology, for example, our GU pathologists, they're experienced in seeing it. However, in the community, if somebody doesn't have a GU pathologist and they come across a plasma cytoid variant, what do we do with that? And the AUA guidelines suggest, you know, sending um, those for review with an expert GU pathologist. So. If you're being treated at a place where they don't have GU pathologists, that may represent an access issue. Um, another thing is, as you mentioned, clinical trials. So important because, you know, after BCG or even after gemcitabine, mitomycin, what do we do with those patients? Well, if you don't have a clinical trial at your institution and, or the patients in that region have no access to clinical trials, you know, that's another barrier potentially. Um, because you don't want to tell somebody, look, I have to take your bladder or just because there's no other clinical trial around here. Um, you want to, you know, hopefully be able to get them access to those trials. And then the other big one, and it's a little bit controversial, is uh, enhanced cystoscopy. So, you know, if you have uh, blue light at your institution or narrowband imaging, that's fantastic. Um, however, a lot of places don't. In fact, at our uh, guidelines course um, with uh, Drs. Chang and McKiernan, we took a sort of cursory poll, and we've been doing this for, I think, three, this is our fourth year now. Um, we took a poll of the audience, and believe it or not, since 2016 to now, the percentage of the audience that actually have access to these is still pretty low. It's about 5 to 10% out of the 80 people that are there. So it's still not widely disseminated, but obviously there's a cost associated with it, right? So we don't want to say, oh, you know, you need to buy those things to, to get better treatment. No, but at the same time, patients know about it. They read the internet. They ask about it so that is potentially a, an access issue as well. Sometimes there's an access issue too related to intravesical therapy and I know just anecdotally from uh, being at Vanderbilt we'll have patients who have failed BCG and um, want to do a second line therapy and Valstar or gemcitabine is not available in the community so they have to commute long distances to receive the intravesical therapy which um, sometimes can impact their quality of life significantly. Absolutely. Speaking about shortages related to intravesical therapies, currently there's a lot of stress uh, and anxiety related to the BCG shortage in the United States. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the details related to that shortage? Yeah, so um, it's not ending anytime soon and likely will continue throughout the rest of this year. And um, I, I definitely think it's a real problem when there's only one maker of, of BCG. 
And so I, everybody's anxiously awaiting some of hopefully FDA approval of new strains with these new trials. But it's uh, definitely a source of stress. And also I get lots of phone calls and texts about what do we do because it's our, our community frontline urologists are running out of BCG at a, at a quicker rate than those who have been able to keep a small stockpile and get a higher allocation. And so the, the dispensing of who gets BCG is also not equal. And, and that's definitely creating even more stress. So some strategies, and this was nicely put out by the AUA on their website with support from Beacon, which is a patient advocacy group, as well as uh, the SUO and others, all kind of coming together and doing this in a very rapid and timely fashion. So definitely that should be commended, and it is wonderful and provides a lot of guidance. But the basic is, is that you prioritize BCG for the highest risk patients, those with high grade T1 disease and those with carcinoma in situ. Um, for patients who are in that intermediate risk category, especially recurrent low grade patients, those are the patients you move over to a chemotherapy agent. And in that, in that BCG naive population, the chemotherapy agent can be single agent with gemcitabine. Um, in patients with high-grade TA disease that's multifocal, that's a little bit uh, kind of a, a gray group. If they could get BCG, that would be great. And if they can't, those are the patients that we're actually using um, double-agent chemotherapy for, for that group specifically. If you can split BCG between patients and organize it in your center so patients can share vials, you can reduce the dose up to a third, which is considered acceptable. And it's really limiting the amount of maintenance therapy you end up doing and trying to allocate that to your highest risk patients. If you absolutely have zero BCG, then everything is moved to combination intravesical chemotherapy, gemcitabine and docetaxel, has actually some data in the BCG naive space from Johns Hopkins that Dr. Bivlacqua presented at our session. And also there is some hopefully updated data coming from Dr. O'Donnell from multi-institutional collaboration. But that is, that is what we're doing. Great, and so the efficacy of split dose BCG is reasonable? It's reasonable. From a, from a billing standpoint, I know that there's been some excitement related to that. How do we bill for split vials? And I don't think there's any clear guidance yet on how we're supposed to be doing that. That's 100% correct. <laughs> yeah. um, do you, as panelists, feel anecdotally that you're doing more timely or early cystectomies in light of the shortage? So I don't believe that in my patient population we're shifting excessively to that. What we've done is we've tried to seek out clinical trials that we may not currently be participating in. So for example, we were not participating in the SWOG BCG TICE versus BCG Tokyo strain, and so that became an immediate priority. How can we make available uh, therapies that are currently only available in a clinical trial setting to help with our BCG uh, uh, shortage and help obviate that burden and that need? Um, Dr. Gore, how do you facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding treatment and management of bladder cancer? That's, I think, one of our toughest but one of our most important jobs as bladder cancer care providers. Um, there are conceptual models of shared decision-making in which one of the pillars of shared decision-making is knowledge. And so I always tell patients that what I would like to do is I would like you to leave the room knowing what I know about your bladder cancer. And so how can I first educate them about the cancer that they have and the potential impact? And so we do talk about risk stratification because I think it's very uh, imperative that they understand the recurrence and the progression risks 
because I think that helps them understand the need for compliance with the intensive surveillance schedule that we um, put patients through. That vigilance is really important, we think, to capturing some adverse recurrences um, early, and that may obviate some progressive disease. So I try to talk to them first and foremost about that. There are some resources available as well through the AUA, through Beacon, uh, the Beacon booklet on um, uh, um, bladder cancer basics for the newly diagnosed is actually written in partnership with patients. So it's using very patient-centered language and it has some excellent diagrams, as do some of the documents on the AUA website. And I definitely try to direct patients to that. The last thing I try to do is, I think it's important to understand that you are part of a community. So I try to help patients seek out local area support groups, as well as online available support groups, so that they understand that they're not alone. And then there are some questions that patients want to ask that maybe we're not the best audience for, or we're not the best advice giver for, and other patients might be their best resource. Great. Um, Dr. Portner, Dr. Rich, uh, anything to add to that? Any additional resources that you're using when counseling your patients? Sure, I think I, I can make two comments. One sure. to your first about, are we removing more bladders in the, in the light of BCG shortage? That doesn't make me feel really great to sort of move that way or do that. And so we again have uh, sought out clinical trials and if in terms of figuring out how to do that, working with your cooperative groups between Alliance, SWOG, and ECOG is a, is a really good resource. The other is the SUO Clinical Trials Consortium, or SUOCTC, to help improve access and bring those trials to your institution. Um, the other thing that people should know is that there are many, many financial aid programs that can help patients get access. Uh, to clinical trials if it is burdensome and there is a distance and so many institutions have that available. It's very hard to find those those resources so just knowing that they're out there is, is one place to start. In terms of speaking with patients and helping them make a decision about what they should do, definitely everything Dr. Gore said <laughs> is you, you want to do that and I would say one thing that I've borrowed from my integrative medicine um, friends and other physicians is they do ask a single question to each patient. And they ask a patient what brings them joy. And it's a real starting point at kind of looking at some of these quality of life issues when you're, when you're talking about recommending different treatments and the pluses and minuses of those treatments. It helps you get to know a patient um, better and also in a more time efficient way. So that's one practical strategy that I use Great. to do that. Yeah, in, in terms of the question about the early cystectomy, same here. I mean. Um, I don't feel very compelled to like force patients down that route to get an early cystectomy because we don't have BCG. You know, we try to exhaust all the other options, um, intravesical chemo or as outlined by the uh, AUA shortage, uh, sorry, AUA guidelines and the shortage um, statements. So um, in terms of how I approach patients, uh, John hit the nail on the head, it's risk stratification and really emphasizing what sort of bucket each of them sits in and what that means for them in terms of recurrence and progression. And when I discuss it with patients, you know, I'll, I'll sort of show them what the future looks like as best as I can using those risk stratification tools. Um, although it's always difficult, especially in the intermediate risk group because it's so heterogeneous um, to exactly tell them where they're going to end up. And, you know, there are other there are risk calculators that, you know, I can talk to patients about, but they're a little bit hard to use like the EORTC risk calculators. If you're not a very savvy, you know, user of risk calculators as a patient, it's going to be hard to interpret. Um, and then from, in general, I'll be honest, at, at the University of Miami, internally, we don't have a great patient advocacy sort of group 
but I, I tend to refer patients to the uh, like the Beacon website um, and have them, you know, it has great information on there and have them review that and then they'll come back and discuss those questions with me. So that's sort of how I approach it with the patients. Great. I think one common theme that we've all mentioned is um, advocacy and BCAN. And in the short time that I've been in urology, I've seen a lot of attention focused on um, bladder cancer and raising awareness. So I do want to point out that it is Bladder Cancer Month, Awareness Month. Um, the BCAN has partnered with a number of different sites across the country and are hosting walks to raise awareness and raise money for uh, bladder cancer. I certainly use the BCAN in counseling my patients as well, and I think that it is a very patient-friendly resource, um, easy to direct them online and connect them with other people who are going through this. So let's talk about some take-home points for um, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and what we can learn from the AUA. Again, let's focus back on, on the guidelines. I think uh, risk stratification is really key to the management of, of these patients. Absolutely. Yeah, so in terms of the going back to the guidelines, again, you know, the way they're meant to be used, you know, risk stratification tables, you just start with every time a patient is being managed for bladder cancer at each occurrence. It's an iterative process. So, you know, when they come in, you apply the risk stratification tool, put them in, you know, the, each bucket, and then follow the guidelines from there. Um, and then as far as take-home messages are concerned, you know, there are a lot of exciting things on the horizon, but, you know, um, a little bit early to, to have them become standard of care, specifically when it comes to biomarkers, as we talked about in the beginning. We're still, the jury is still out, but we'd like to see, you know, the studies continue so that we can incorporate them in the guidelines in the future. And then again, you know, the dissemination of enhanced cystoscopy and what that's going to look like in the future, either with narrowband imaging or white light, uh, sorry, blue light cystoscopy, what that's going to look like. Um, and then, you know, continuing uh, to build upon the foundation of re-resection, perioperative insulation of chemotherapy. So those are sort of the take-home messages from a guideline standpoint. Great. And so gemcitabine, the new standard for certain patients? I believe so, especially in the setting of a post-TURBT installation. Great. Um, and then in terms of BCG, we know we're in the midst of a BCG shortage, but there are clear guidelines and guidance from our governing bodies on what to do. And there are significant um, there's significant work being done in the area of clinical trials and new intravesical uh, therapies. Um, we can talk about some, some cases and some certain uh, patients' uh, scenarios. Um, let's, uh, you did a great job on, on Saturday presenting um, some challenging patients. Um, can you pose to the group uh, one of those patient scenarios and we can discuss what we might do? Yeah, sure. So, 83-year-old gentleman. Uh, who has irritated avoiding symptoms in microscopic hematuria for about eight months, gets, gets referred, um, is found to have high-grade TA multifocal disease with carcinoma in site two, and upper tract imaging is negative. He has a lot of comorbidities. He's had laryngeal cancer and a laryngectomy. He's had a DVT and a PE and is on lifelong anticoagulation and has uh, diabetes, which is fairly well controlled. He does have some significant exposure history with Agent Orange and also a former 20-pack year smoker. And so, um, you know, you get your re-review at your, at your institution and it says, yes, you have high-grade TA carcinoma in situ 2 in this bladder. And then I guess this is where I was posing to my other panelists, well, yes. what's the next step? <laughs> you did re-resect the patient? I did. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, uh, you got a re-review on the pathology, but yes. 
the next step was talking about re-resection in this, in this patient, exactly as you said, and yeah. we did re-resect that patient. Um, when you re-resected that patient, was that with the assistance of enhanced cystoscopy techniques such as blue light or narrowband imaging? Yes, that was with, with the assistance of blue light cystoscopy when we re-resected that patient. And guidelines definitely say that you have to re-resect with high-grade T1, um, no matter what. You always do, and with high-grade TA, uh, I think our big take-home point there is, is that everybody thinks that they're getting it all the first time, yeah. and most often, even the best resectionist uh, could admit that they don't. Yeah. And so for a high-volume, high-grade TA, or something that's multifocal, most of the time I will go back and re-resect, and, and we did find in that patient some residual high-grade TA and some more carcinoma in situ. If you, if you look at the guidelines, so there's two statements about re-resection. Well, there's more than two, but in terms of the high-grade patient. So you have the high-risk, high-grade patient, which is exactly what your point of multifocal. Um, those patients should get a re-resection. The guidelines didn't want to come out strong and say you absolutely have to do it in those patients, as opposed to the high-grade T1, CIS, truly high-risk patients. They were stronger in saying that's a stronger recommendation for re-resecting in those patients. But there is a significant number of high-risk, high-grade TA patients that will harbor residual disease. It's up to 50% in some studies um, on re-resection, and they have a risk of about 15% of upstaging. Mm -hmm. So definitely re-resection is to consider. And again, in that case, that's a nice illustration of you risk stratified that patient from the beginning and then followed the guidelines um, algorithm to get to the next step after that. Yeah, and along those lines of repeat resection or even initial um, resection, quality is important. And we know we have a lot of quality markers out there, and making sure that every time you're resecting, you're having muscle in the specimen is, is certainly critical. So that's a patient that I think many of us would recommend BCG for. Um, does this patient go on to get BCG? And this patient went on to get BCG because there was no shortage at that time. And um, he, he got, as we had outlined before, the SWOG protocol with induction for six weeks and, um, and then a follow-up cystoscopy after that and then he had two maintenance cycles following that and his cystoscopy after the second maintenance cycle, so that would be 12 installations total of BCG, he had had a little bit of redness, um, which you can see often, but he had had a frankly positive cytology. Um, can we just talk for a second about what the guidelines recommend in terms of follow-up according to risk strata? Yeah. So the last few statements of the guidelines are about surveillance, you know, and then, uh, so you start with the low-risk patients, so those ones are pretty straightforward. Everybody has to get their first three months cystoscopy, three to four months. Um, and then after that, for a low-risk patient, basically six to nine months after that, and then annually up to five years, and after that it's, you know, up to the patient and the physician for low-risk patients. Intermediate risks. It's, uh, again, three months cystoscopy for everybody, and then three to six months for two, year, two years, and then six to 12 months for another two years, and then annually thereafter. And then the difference between the intermediate and the high-risk patient is that that window, the three to six months, is tighter. So they say for a higher-risk patient, it's gonna be about three to four months, um, so every three to four months for the first two years, and then every six to 12 months, uh, sorry, every six months for the next three to, uh, three and four years yeah, afterwards. So during that five year period, um, it's high risk, three months, three months, and then uh, six months, six months, and then um, after that annually if they're free of disease. 
And so all of this highlights how labor intensive this is for both the medical system, but more importantly for the patient. And there's been some work, again, looking at quality, um, the number of patients who actually receive all of the follow-up cystoscopies that are recommended by the guidelines is actually very, very low. Um, so unfortunately, in this situation, your patient recurred, is that correct? Yeah, and so in, in the situation of having a positive cytology and equivocal white light findings, so this is another case that we, we repeated a blue light cystoscopy in him. And um, I think the other important point is, generally at this time, I also re-look at the upper tracts just to make sure there's no development of upper tract disease, which can happen in about 10 to 15% of patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So we did that. And also I usually will get a prostatic urethral biopsy too at that time in men, because it's another place where you can miss potential carcinoma in situ lesion. And so we, we did all of that for him. Blue light did show a pretty large area that ended up being carcinoma in situ that was may have been caught on random biopsies, but may have not. Um, it encompassed a pretty large area of the dome. And so when he ended up with carcinoma in situ, this basically means he's BCG responsive and unresponsive. And that's because he is BCG relapsing technically, but he relapsed early. So he got adequate BCG, he was disease free, and then he developed a recurrence within six months of his last BCG. So he falls in that early relapsing category, which makes you unresponsive, BCG unresponsive. Um, one important point that I just want to highlight is that if blue light cystoscopy is negative, but urine cytology is positive, you don't have to stop the investigation there. You have to continue going as you did go and evaluate the upper tracts and biopsy the urethra and uh, look for, for additional sources of cancer, unfortunately. That's a great example, just to follow up on that. Um, in the guidelines panel course, I was speaking with Drs. Chang and McKiernan, and that same exact question came up. So you do a blue light cystoscopy, do you, do you still do prostatic urethral biopsies in the situation of a positive cytology? And you know, this isn't you know, any level one evidence, but expert consensus just in that course was that you should still evaluate the prostatic urethra and the upper tracts, even if you're doing a blue light. So don't hang your hat on just the blue light results. Um, and the reason is that if you look at the data, it's about 15 to 20 percent of patients with a positive cytology that will harbor disease in the prostatic urethra. So what did this patient end up getting for therapy? So uh, we, we had a, a long and frank discussion and again using a classification system. So in this it wasn't it was risk stratification, but using more of the BCG terminology. And once you have a category, then you can actually talk about numbers. And we can talk about that in context of um, frailty and also goals of care and age and what the morbidity would look like to, to, for him to undergo a cystectomy, which I think would be significant and was not within what he wanted. And so then we talked about, um, well, what is there and again it's the intravesical chemotherapy and take home point is double agent over single agent mm -hmm. and um, and then we talked about a clinical trial in this one it was one that I didn't mention in, in, in the previous conversation but he enrolled onto SWOG 1605 and so that's looking at atezolizumab which is another systemic immunotherapy agent and um, and looking at that in BCG unresponsive disease and it is almost close to it's close close to full of accrual and we'll hopefully see the, the effects of that. And I think the one thing no to mention for that is no therapy is without a side effect. 
And so in counseling for the clinical trial, it's the same principles that Dr. Gore and Dr. Rich were talking about before, is that there are immunotherapy side effects. And I think as we start seeing these agents move into uh, a patient group that we as urologists take care of, that we've got to be aware of a lot of those immune-mediated side effects, which tend to be hypothyroidism, colitis, not just diarrhea, but colitis that can be life-threatening, uh, type 1 diabetes development, um, uh, pituitary issues, skin rashes. I mean, I think a lot of us are seeing many different things out there that um, we haven't seen before and are trying to raise awareness within our, our trainees and then also a lot of, the, a lot of our other uh, colleagues who are out there at the ERs and having to consult right. on these patients, yeah. So for the patients who do go on to progress and uh, need a radical cystectomy, perioperative nutrition is critical. And you, congratulations, recently published something in the Journal of Urology about um, a nutritional supplement given prior to cystectomy and how that impacts sarcopenia and patient outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, sure. So as you all know, cystectomy is a pretty morbid operation. Um, and you know a lot of it is attributed to nutritional um, deficiencies. You know everybody looks at serum albumin as a thing. Uh, sarcopenia is emerging as one of the big markers in um, bladder cancer and all cancer patients, really, um, as far as how they do in terms of survival and complications. And there's been some nice work. Sarah Sarka is one of the people who has been a pioneer in uh, sarcopenia research in bladder cancer. And um, essentially, what we did was we took patients that were undergoing cystectomy, gave them a perioperative nutrition for two weeks before and four weeks after. We used Ensure in this case, but there's a host of other things you can do, but essentially a um, protein and calorie boosting supplement as well as high carbohydrates. Um, and we found that the patients who underwent surgery afterwards, the complication rates were lower um, in the nutritional supplement <coughs> group versus a multivitamin control, but it wasn't statistically significant. What was significant was uh, their ability to preserve their muscle mass. So. The patients that were supplemented afterwards were less likely to be sarcopenic um, compared to their multivitamin controls. And it was a short-term um, short pilot study. Uh, in the, ideally, you'd like to see a larger number of patients so you can power it for complications. Um, but it's, it's exciting in the sense that now we know we can actually intervene on the patients and see a reliable objective marker, sarcopenia, um, that changes afterwards and hopefully benefits them in the long run. And that translated into um, fewer complications that were lower grade and lower exactly. readmissions? Exactly. So it was lower readmissions, um, fewer complications. But again, it was 60 patients, so the actual you know, p-value for significance wasn't met. But um, on the just comparison of numbers, yeah, lower complications, fewer readmissions in those patients that were supplemented. And just to sort of drive that point home a little bit further, we know the average age for the diagnosis of bladder cancer is around 73 years of age and the majority of patients develop this as a result of smoking and so this is a very comorbid population which impacts our decisions um, in terms of treatment especially when they go on to progress to muscle invasive disease. Well I want to thank you guys for your time on this panel today. I think there's a lot of excitement going on in bladder cancer and a lot of uh, continued effort and energy focus in that direction and um, I really appreciate you joining us for the AUA Live 2019.